Hello and welcome to episode three of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. My name is Arup Sen and I'm joined as ever by Simon Lovegrove. Hello Simon. Hello Arup, great to be here. Well it's great to have you Simon as always. Uh, in this month's episode we'll be hearing more Brexit updates from Jonathan Herbst. We'll be discussing vulnerable customers with a distinctly global lens, hearing from both John Coley from our London office and also Helen Taylor from Sydney. Uh, and we will close with an enforcement update from our disputes colleagues, Katie Stephen and Sonia Zuko. But before we hear from Jonathan on Brexit, over to Simon for a quick run through of the big RT stories this month. Thanks, Arun. There's been a lot going on since our last podcast, and I've lost count how many blog postings we've actually issued on the Regulation Tomorrow blog. There's been quite a few announcements from both the European Supervisory Authorities and the SCA on Brexit, as you'd expect, in particular on the share trading obligation and derivatives trading obligation, which Jonathan will discuss later. There have also been a few useful new SCA Brexit related web pages. Uh, these include one which is particularly useful for fund managers in the sense that it explains the proposed process for adding a new sub fund to an umbrella scheme that will be in the temporary marketing permissions regime. Moving away from Brexit for a moment, one of the other key headlines this month is LIBOR transition. And we've recently seen ICE Benchmark Administration, that's the SCA regulated and authorized administrator of LIBOR, launch its consultation to cease the publication of one week and two month US dollar LIBOR settings immediately following the LIBOR publication on 31st December 2021. And crucially, extend the publication of the other remaining LIBOR tenors, the overnight one, three, six and 12 month US dollar LIBOR settings until 30th of June, 2023. More information on LIBOR transition can be found on our LIBOR transition hub. Another key headline would relate to sustainable finance. Since our last podcast, there's been 10 Regulation Tomorrow blog posts on this subject on the UK page alone, including that at the beginning of December, the long anticipated delegated acts on ESG disclosure requirements for benchmark administrators authorised or registered under the European Benchmarks Regulation have been published in the official journal. One final headline to pick up on relates to the banking sector. In mid-November, the PRA published an interesting speech by Sam Woods, which was called Strong and Simple, where he spoke about the regulator's work on a possible proportionate regime for regulating small UK banks and building societies post-Brexit. We've also seen in the banking space the Bank Recovery and Resolution Amendment EU Exit Regulations 2020. These implement into UK law those elements of the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive 2 that come into effect before the end of the transition period. The statutory instrument's interesting in that some of the provisions are subject to sunsetting provisions so that they actually expire after the transition period ends. I think both are fairly good examples of something that is going to become a key topic for clients in 2021 and beyond, which is regulatory divergence between the UK and the EU. And there are other examples that we've seen throughout the year. This is something I know you and I, Arup, have been discussing a lot, and we've been working on a divergence track at all, which is housed on our Brexit Pathfinder hub. That's the headlines for this month, but now I think we're joined by Jonathan Herbs, who's gonna give us our usual Brexit update. As ever, for our usual Brexit slot, I'm joined by our Global Head of Financial Services, Jonathan Herbst. 
Jonathan, lots of political activity going on at the moment with Boris Johnson flying over to Brussels later today. But to start off with, with less than a month to go before the end of the transition period, what are you seeing in the market? Th thanks, Simon. Hi, everybody. I think we are seeing people continue with their plans. To some degree, they have speeded up um, to the extent that you know, people think there is a chance of a, quote, no deal, although as we'll come on to, maybe it doesn't make much difference for financial services. But the mood music is such that people are just carrying on with their plans. Um, but, you know, everyone's pretty calm because, um, you know, it is it is what it is. And one just has to keep going on. And just to pick up on a point you just mentioned there, does a deal really change anything for financial services firms? Yes and no. No, in the sense that, you know, there was never going to be a cross-border quotes passport or equivalent built into the free trade agreement. That's a separate process, um, you know, which is part of the commission equivalence pr um, proceedings, etc. That's that's where it makes no difference. I think where it does make a difference, arguably, is more the mood music. Uh, so, for example, you know, it is fair to say that probably a number of jurisdictions would be coming out with transitional provisions if they were not so concerned about the, you know, the optics of that. It is interesting to note that a couple of jurisdictions in the Nordic countries have already done that very recently. So you know, we're beginning to see that happening, but I think until a deal is done, you know, that won't be unlocked in a big way. So yes, there is some relevance, but you know, in a literal technical sense, these are two separate tracks. And last time we did our podcast, we spoke about the share trading obligation. Uh, since that podcast, we've now seen a statement from ESMA on the derivatives trading obligation. What's your take on ESMA's statement? Well, look, ESMA's view is, is clear, which is that, you know, we said that if you're a European entity and it's an in-scope derivative, you've got to trade on a European platform or another equivalent platform, i.e. not a UK platform. We're sticking to that view. I mean, I have my views on the politics of it. I, I personally think it's a shame in terms of creating a proper regulatory policy directed approach as opposed to political directed approach. But to be frank, I think it was totally predictable. And, you know, that is where the European authorities have come from. The UK, for its own reasons, appears to have taken a very different approach on these issues. Um, not for me to comment, just a lawyer, not for me to comment on the pros and cons, but it is it is what it is. It does, I mean, it does leave um, European institutions in a slightly strange position of potentially having to trade on USFs in order to, you know, have an equivalent market to the extent that the UK doesn't cave on this one as it did on the STO. And just now looking forward past the end of the transition period, we've seen this month the financial services bill but looking even further forward, what do you think we can expect to see from uh, HM Treasury next? Well, I think the, the Treasury said, the Chancellor said in his statements or three weeks ago now, <clears throat> that there'd be a couple of calls for evidence. I think the most important one to keep an eye out for is the call for evidence on the so-called overseas regime, which is, you know, the whole uh, regime for business coming into the UK, in particular the overseas persons exclusion. We're expecting that imminently. Um, and I think, you know, it will be a series of questions for the industry to answer. How is it used? What does it mean? Et cetera, et cetera. And there'll be, you know, a normal consultation period. I think we'd anticipate that being three months or so. 
Uh, and so, you know, clearly the Treasury understandably, and they've trailed this, are looking at that aspect of the regime and various others. And we're going to see that gathering pace next year. And that may, you know, the outcome of that is not, is to be determined. It will depend on the, the broader context. That's great, Jonathan. Thanks for that. No worries. In this part of the podcast, we're going to look at the hot topic of vulnerable customers. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Helen Taylor from our Sydney office and also John Coley from our, our London office. Uh, first question, in both the UK and Australia, the pandemic has brought a heightened focus on the handling of vulnerable customers. What sorts of initiatives and guidance have been released by the respective regulators uh, for financial institutions so far? Perhaps you can take this one, John, first. Thanks, Simon. So in the UK, there's been a raft of guidance that's been issued by the Financial Conduct Authority over the course of this year. Uh, this has included payment holidays, temporary bans on repossessions, and not reporting worsening credit status across both mortgages and consumer credit. Uh, it's also included interest-free overdrafts, forbearance arrangements for insurance customers that are in financial difficulty, and also a requirement for insurers to review the value of their products in light of COVID-19, which I think is quite interesting and a different dimension to how product manufacturers should, should look at what they provide. Um, and then additionally, over the summer, the FCA has opened its latest consultation on the fair treatment of vulnerable customers, which is expected to be finalised early next year. And this really includes expectations on how businesses should meet vulnerable customer needs through three key steps. So firstly, understanding customer needs, which means the impacts and the drivers of vulnerability. Secondly, the skills and capability of staff, so they can ensure vulnerable customers are treated fairly and appropriately. And then thirdly, taking practical action. So thinking across the customer journey from product design through to post sales handling in terms of how vulnerable customers should be treated most effectively. Thanks, John. It's actually been quite a similar story here in Australia. Our government regulators and financial institutions were actually very quick to implement a suite of measures which were targeted at supporting customers impacted by the pandemic. A lot of the guidance issued by ASIC, who is our conduct regulator, and APRA, our prudential regulator, focused on loan and mortgage payment deferrals, both in terms of the options available to distressed customers, as well as the capital treatment of those loans. We also had some interesting guidance about um, the, the ability of customers to access their compulsory superannuation contributions early, up to the sum of 20,000. And that's really just to aid them financially during the period of the pandemic. Another interesting point, we saw ASIC actually amend its strategic priorities this year to really guide its focus over the pandemic with one of its near-term priorities being the protection of consumers from harm at a type of heightened vulnerability. We're actually already starting to see some of the ASIC enforcement action flow through to the courts where they're taking action against egregious misconduct such as predatory lending, scams and false and misleading advertising which obviously tend to impact vulnerable customers disproportionately. But actually some of the more, most exciting things we've actually seen happen have come from our financial institutions here who've been rolling out some great initiatives which are really targeted at supporting customers with some of the more unfortunate side effects of the pandemic, including increased domestic violence and financial abuse. 
We've seen the establishment of specialist trauma-informed teams who provide confidential support to help customers with their immediate banking needs, as well as free coaching programmes to help people build financial confidence and capabilities they're trying to escape their abuser. Thanks, John. Thanks, Helen. I think my second question, in, in light of all the recent regulatory initiatives, what advice would you give to financial institutions looking to revise policies or systems in respect of vulnerable customers? From my side, Simon, I guess in order to properly embed consideration of vulnerable customers, I think there are three specific questions for businesses to, to think about and consider. So firstly, does the business have a, an understanding of the needs of its customers who may be vulnerable and also the harm that can arise if those needs aren't met? Now, this is particularly important given the current pandemic may have resulted in more of firms' customer base both becoming vulnerable, but also potentially in more complicated ways. Secondly, do staff have the necessary knowledge, skills and capability to both meet and service these needs? So staff training is really important, especially setting clear objectives and also reinforcing the right behaviours through training and ongoing guidelines to customers, particularly as the pandemic evolves. And then thirdly, the output of the business's analysis on vulnerable customer needs then being translated into practical action. So by this, I mean, it's important to think about the customer journey. Examples around this could be breaks in the sales journey so that customers have got time to pause and reflect on the decisions they want to make. Um, having an appropriately broad range of communication channels because vulnerable customers may have different needs in terms of how they want to receive communications. And then lastly, given the pandemic particularly, having a suitable forbearance suite that is flexible and can support customers that might get into difficulty. Thanks, John. I absolutely agree that it's going to be essential for financial institutions to really carefully and continually monitor customer behaviour to ensure they're actually able to detect emerging vulnerabilities and harm as we roll through the pandemic and hopefully down the road of recovery. And it's going to be really, really critical for them to proactively assess whether their current processes, people and systems are actually capable of adequately identifying and preventing that harm. I mean, if I think about Australia at the moment, a really good example is actually the increasing amount of elder financial abuse that we're actually starting to see as a possible consequence of the pandem pandemic. And it's actually really difficult to identify, and that can be especially so in a digital world where there's actually limited opportunity to observe the older customer in a branch and actually spend some time face-to-face -face with that customer. So one thing that we're really trying to encourage clients to think about doing is to test their current processes and systems using a really broad range of vulnerability scenarios. And that should enable them to identify skills, process and control gaps and ensure appropriate escalation re reporting channels have build, been built in. Thanks both. I think my third question for you would be, what are the key problematic issues in UK and Australia in relation to vulnerable customers? In the UK, I think a key ongoing challenge is making sure that businesses keep fully across all the regularly updated guidance on customer treatment that's been published by the FCA. Um, I think this is also particularly important in the context of global accountability regimes as well, and making sure that businesses take reasonable steps to demonstrate how they've considered that guidance and how they've done the right thing with it. Um, 
there's a particular area I think that we foresee as a challenge going to the new year is how businesses emerge from the pandemic, touch wood, and also strike a balance between delivering fair customer outcomes, but also the potential under or even over forbearance that could not be in the customer's best interest. So businesses should be thinking about conducting things such as lessons learned reviews, for example, across governance, customer treatment, communications and other factors so that they can think about and make sure that processes are both consistent and joined up. And if they do decide to treat some customers differently or different cohorts of vulnerable customers, that they can understand over time that this is fair and appropriate and actually is in the customer's best interest. Thanks, John. Um, I think one of the things that we've been really focusing on here in Australia is just the sort of integration of digital platforms and, and the increasing use of automation in terms of, um, you know, financial product applications and credit applications. And I guess, um, you know, back to the point around um, how much more difficult it can be for a institution to be able to identify customers' vulnerabilities and potentially see some of the harm that may being caused to that customer and I guess we're actually a bit concerned that an increased use of digital platforms and automation may expose institutions if their digital platforms aren't fully integrated with all the information that's actually held on the institution's customer relationship management system. I mean I'm sure you'll appreciate that quite often you may find that customers throughout the course of their um, time with that institution have volunteered information about some of their vulnerabilities and we can absolutely see instances where it's recorded in a, a CRM system that perhaps isn't being picked up where an, a, a customer is absolutely make, making an application either through a digital platform and or that um, application is actually being approved without the involvement of a staff member. Thanks, John. Thanks, Helen, for that really useful update on vulnerable customers, which will continue to be an important topic. Uh, in 2021. I always think that there's lots the UK and Australia can learn from each other in a regulatory sense, given the similarities of the regimes. I'll now hand over to Arup. I'm delighted to be joined by Sonia Zuko and Katie Stephen from our disputes team. And today uh, they'll be discussing the latest hot topics uh, in enforcement. So perhaps we can start with market abuse. Uh, Sonia, what types of market abuse cases are we currently seeing in enforcement? Well, market integrity continues to be a focus for the regulators and the FCA was quick to highlight the importance of timely disclosure of inside information at the start of the pandemic. Um, in terms of the market abuse cases we've seen to date, we've seen the FCA issue a £17.6 million fine for inaccurate market disclosure and separately it's pursuing criminal proceedings against three former employees of a listed entity uh, alleging false and misleading statements. This is an area where we expect to see more activity, uh, particularly in relation to market disclosure where firms could have announced deteriorating financial performance sooner than they did. Um, it's not just the SCA that's been active in this area. We've seen Ofgem fine SSE over the summer for failing to consider whether uh, information was inside information. And that related to non-binding heads of terms in relation to uh, the generation of a significant amount of power, which is referred to as black start capability. 
uh, and that was contrary to previous expectations that that those units would be uh, maybe shut down. Spoofing is um, an area where traditionally we've seen more activity from US regulators, but there are signs that there may be more activity from a UK perspective. Uh, certainly we've seen a recent case come through in the form of the Abatista fine, and there may be more action on this front going forward. Um, most recently, the FCA fined uh, an options broker, TFS ICAP, over 3.4 million um, in relation to a practice known as printing. And essentially that's where a broker would tell a client that a transaction had taken place in a particular size or price when in fact no transaction had taken place. Uh, and ostensibly the motivation for that was to generate business, but perhaps not surprisingly, the FCA took the view that where misleading information was being provided to market participants that risked undermining the integrity of the market. Katie, can you tell us a bit more about that case? Yeah, sure. Uh, just to give a bit of background, um, in the case, the FCA found that printing took place uh, periodically amongst the FX options traders at TFS ICAP over a period of about eight years. It took place openly on desks and some saw it as market practice, although the FCA found no records that senior managers had been aware uh, of printing. Uh, there are a few lessons learned from this case for brokers and some more general points about market abuse for a wider range of firms. So firstly, where there is market abuse or the risk of market abuse is identified um, in an affiliate or somewhere else in the group, you really need to map that risk across to the business and properly address it. So in this case, when there were instances of printing raised at an affiliate, the FCA found that the firm had failed to engage properly with the risk that there might be misconduct at the firm itself. The FCA highlighted that there was no formal written instructions or guidance expressly addressing the uh, prohibition of uh, printing that had been given to the brokers in London, even following the discovery of the misconduct in the overseas affiliate. And the senior managers hadn't made any written record of uh, discussions about that sort of conduct. I think the second thing is that firms really need to have an adequate formal senior management board and committee structure to facilitate compliance and, and conduct risks, including the risk of market abuse being properly considered. In this case, the board had only met once a year and it convened solely to approve the accounts. There were no senior management committees in existence below the board. And that meant that there was an absence of proper oversight over the business activities of the firm at senior management level. And there was no properly functioning method for escalating that, those, those sorts of issues. So from a governance perspective for broking firms, they've really got to ensure that their governance structure facilitates that proper oversight of the broking desks. The third point for brokers is that in this uh, case, the FCA made reference to the fact that the compliance manual and the compliance monitoring program didn't really contain any express mention of printing. And there was no compliance training specifically relating to printing given to brokers. And compliance didn't engage specifically with brokers in relation to this practice. And so broking firms really need to revisit their policies and training to ensure that 
printing is covered. And more broadly than that, I think they need to think about other types of practice on which training and guidance needs to be given, um, because that really needs to be covered and, and training and, and manuals need to be more bespoke to the sorts of practices that firms are seeing. Thanks, Katie. What do you see on the enforcement horizon? Well, we've written previously in our blog about the heightened risk of market abuse in a remote working context. And I think with many people working at home, this uh, may be an opportunity for uh, individuals to commit market abuse, whether that's by trading on the basis of inside information or, or in, in some other way, passing on information, for example. As Simon mentioned uh, in last month's podcast in October, Julia Hoggart had, uh, of the FCA gave a useful speech for firms on market abuse in the um, context of the pandemic. And in that speech, she flagged that institutions need to ensure they've got proper controls over inside information. And having effective information barriers is even more critical at times like this. So office and working from home arrangements should really be equivalent. One of the uh, FCA's insider dealing cases has recently uh, gone to the Court of Appeal. Uh, and in that case, the senior compliance officer at an investment bank had uh, that was found to have used her position to identify inside information, which she then passed on to a friend who then used that information uh, to, to make a significant profit of around 1.4 million. Um, and this type of information sharing is much harder to police when people are working at home. And the fact that the FCA has highlighted these risks and will regard them as foreseeable um, could be an aggravating factor if there's any uh, enforcement action taken. Agreed. I think against this background, I think we can expect to see an uptick in investigations and enforcement action in this area where evidence comes to light about opportunistic conduct or poor controls around inside information. Uh, in those cases, we expect a focus on the role of senior managers, particularly where there's an issue over the adequacy of procedures or surveillance arrangements, particularly since the FCA has made ex expectations clear on that front. And just one point that's interesting to note coming out of last month's delayed disclosure review, there's a number of interesting points, but just to highlight one, uh, the FCA has reminded issuers that their starting assumption should be that periodic financial information could be inside information. And so we expect to see further scrutiny on this in this area in the coming months. Well, there's certainly plenty uh, for our listeners to think about. So thank you very much, Katie, and thank you very much, Sonia. Thanks, Arup, Sonia, and Katie. That was a really, really interesting enforcement update. That concludes our, our podcast, and it just leaves me to say we hope that everybody has a wonderful Christmas and a very happy new year, and we will see you all in 2021. Take care.